politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, and it's going to be an intimate show, it looks like today. Uh, Joining me from Northern Virginia, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer and longtime Washington insider. He's a man that we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Alan, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm fine, Justin. Uh, it's going to be an intimate. How, 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 how intimate is this? <laughs> it's, it's you and me, kid, as, as right. was said by Humphrey Bogart, which should make for some interesting debate. But uh, I, I'm, I'm sure uh, we will get others to join in as they usually do. There's a lot going on in Washington, obviously, if you can't tell. And we've got a lot to talk about between tariffs and the Russian investigation and uh, all kinds of things going on. The Davos conference of, of economic leaders in Switzerland is happening. All kinds of stuff we can talk about. But, but, Alan, we have to start off with the big news that occurred over the weekend. For those who don't know, last Friday at midnight, we had – oh, wait a minute. Joining us in second. It's going to be intimate, but not as intimate. Joining us on the line, she is the former – uh, attorney for the Hillary Clinton campaign in Ohio during the 2016 election. She is the wonderful barrister that we know as Sharmila Chari. Sharmila, how are you? I'm great, Justin. How are you guys? Yeah, uh, thanks for having us. Or thanks for having. No, thanks for joining us. We have you anyway. Oh. And let's continue on. We're uh, kicking it off by talking about. The uh, government shutdown that happened over the weekend, in case those who don't know, uh, as of Friday at midnight, the government went into shutdown. There was no funding to keep the government operational, which started a long weekend of wheeling and dealing between Senate and House leaders and uh, Senate Republicans, Senate Democrats, and obviously buy-in from the House. The, the big, I think the big, big ticket item here is the fact that it did shut down. But the real question that's happening is what is actually happening after the shutdown? As of this, as of this morning, government went back to fully funded operations, but only for three weeks. This funding cycle goes only until February 8th, which gives us three weeks of cash to keep the uh, government running. Well, Alan, let me start with you here real quick. Uh, number one, it, 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 it seems to me that the big ticket item on the government shutdown was a flip-flop by the White House regarding immigration, which kind of set a lot of people off, and that kind of set the ball in motion to get the shutdown happen. Is that accurate? When, I'm not sure I understand the premise where you said that a flip flop by the White House. Well, we had, so um, let me let me let me just clarify it a little bit. I mean, we had it what looked like a deal where the president, in a televised meeting, says, "Hey, you guys bring me something. We'll I'll I'll back it up. I'll sign it into law, and we'll get it done." And then by Thursday, it looked like that they had flip-flopped and said that uh, chain migration, uh, the wall in particular, and lottery visas were on the table, and unless everybody bought into it, no deal. 
So, so my my take on all of it was uh, that that in that Tuesday meeting that uh, fifty five minutes of which were televised and where the president even there seemed to be <laughs> shifting with the wind uh, a bit. Um, what he said in my hearing was to the group of about thirty people, which really did cover the spectrum. If you folks bring me something. I will sign it. I will take the heat. Now, on the one hand, it sounded like a bold statement. On the other, when you considered who was in the room uh, and the fact that there was no sort of ground rules, what does you people mean? One person, two people, five people, eight people? The, the sense was, if the, that I got, was if the 30 people here, or most of you, could agree to something, then bring it to me and I'll... And, and I'm prepared to, to take the heat and, and accept it. What happened two days later was that two people, uh, Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, and Dick Durbin, the, the number two Democrat leader from Illinois, uh, on behalf of just six senators, three Republicans and three Democrats, came to the president said, we'd like to come and talk to you about an idea that we think is consistent with what you're looking for. It was put together by a bipartisan group. We've been working and talking for a long time, not two days, but months, if not years. And we think it does, uh, uh, it, it meets uh, your criteria. So they go down to see the president, unbeknownst to them, the president, uh, or the White House <laughs> encouraging the president brings some a couple of conservative Republicans uh, into the into the uh, conversation, and these were people who I think were at, at part of the, the group of thirty um, uh, two days earlier. The, the conversation apparently becomes impassioned at some points, ugly. Uh, uh, language is used and, last week. And we talked is, about the S hole and S house right, uh, right. language that that got so much uh, public attention and became a diversion. It was did he say house or did he say hole, and what exactly did he mean? Right. And we were very critical last week about uh, the messages he was sending uh, and the inconsistency. With uh, by the president himself, who seemed to invite a conversation like Durbin uh, and and Graham brought him, um, the, the 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 meeting did not explode. It didn't break up in anger. There were no people didn't walk out, and it took a few hours before the argument about. The vulgar language and who met what right right uh, right sort of transcended the content of the meeting where uh, basically the president was reminded of some of the things he'd been saying a long time and how this this proposal didn't get there but let me unfortunately the, yeah the pre you know then the president got got very negative this this won't do this isn't even close and everything went went south from there that that was you know that, that that's the way it unfolded it's sort of confusing it wasn't that the president right. pivoted 180 degrees and and 
and it's well, his let, fault. It was a process. Let me ask this question. That, let me just jump in and ask this question and, and go to Admiral Ken on this. Admiral Ken, the reports are coming out that along the lines of uh, Alan's comments that the president, in fact, may have uh, been slightly, you know, not to question his mental capability, but he might have been slightly confused or uh, not completely on board with what exactly was brought before him by Durbin, by Senator Durbin and uh, Senator Graham. But we're hearing word out of the White House that, in fact, it was John Kelly, the chief, the president's chief of staff, that in fact led the argument to holding firm on tighter immigration rules. Is, is this a situation where the White House is in fact being ruled policy-wise by some sort of committee rather than the president showing a, uh, some sort of political or, or managerial leadership? Well, if we're going to give any credence to any of the rumors that have come out of the White House, and I think that's something we are probably uh, uh, ill-advised to do, um, this this probably smacks more of uh, what we've heard for some number of, of, of uh, months now, is that the last person that the president talks to is the person who has the president's ear. Um, that said, it would not surprise me um, that um, uh, Chief of Staff Kelly – uh, would have that perspective as he used to run the homeland security. Um, so again, you know, this is all, you know, um, I guess predicated on the fact that um, we have, I guess, maybe a third or fourth person view uh, of the inner workings of the White House. From our perspective as taxpaying citizens who who are engaged and interested and sitting on the edge of our chairs trying to figure out what, uh, in, in uh, candidate Trump's uh, words, what the hell is going on over there, um, we, are, we're, we are left mystified, we're left confused. Uh, we're trying to figure out how the world's best uh, uh, dealmaker could not find a way to make a deal <clears throat> to keep the government from shutting down on his watch. Um, I, am, I, am, I am not surprised – um, at, in in uh, one one bit that uh, the U.S. taxpayers are going to get, um, for all practical purposes, saddled with the cost of building a wall that won't stop drugs, won't stop illegal immigration, and will drive up the debt, um, you know, to epic. You know, for, we're at epic proportions now. So um, further than what's bigger than epic, I don't know. But um, it's it's you know this is not. This is not a White House like any of us has ever seen. It is not a smooth-running operation. Uh, it never has been. We're over a year into this presidency, and there's a good number of positions that have not been filled and will not be filled, not because they can't find candidates, because they can't seem to get out of their own way to take care of the administrivia. But, Sharmila, you know, on the Democratic side, we're hearing a lot of concern <laughs> – particularly some of the concern coming from inside the Democratic Party, criticizing the way that Chuck Schumer handled the deal and criticizing in some instances both Chuck Schumer, the Democratic senator from New York, a majority leader, and the number two, the majority whip in the Senate, uh, Senator Durbin from Illinois. 
Did, in fact, the Democrats blink on this one, or would it have been more politically dangerous for them to hold out and keep the government closed to prove their point, as a lot of the left, far left, are pushing uh, Chuck Schumer to do in February? I have a lot of sympathy for Chuck Schumer in this situation because I think he was in a very precarious position. You know, historically, shutdowns are blamed on the party who is who is insisting on an outcome without um, you know without compromise. Ted Cruz and twenty Ted Cruz and the Republicans in 2013 were absolutely blamed for that shutdown, and so Schumer knew that he could stand on principle for a little while, but it couldn't drag on forever, and so. I think he took the best compromise he could get by getting uh, Mitch McConnell to pledge to do, to take a vote on immigration in the coming weeks. Because unfortunately, I don't, you know, as much as the Democrats want to protect the Dreamers, I don't think that they have a lot of leverage in this negotiation. Alan Moore, Alan Moore, it seems to me that you know the the, the Republicans in both the Senate uh, that Mitch McConnell was holding all the cards. Did Mitch McConnell? play the game and basically uh, outgame Chuck Schumer. Well, <laughs> I, I think, I, I think they both, you know, were, were playing the cards that were dealt. Uh, it, it's not that one guy snookered the other. Remember what we got here. We closed government down over the weekend and Monday. Now we're back in business for, for less than three weeks. Um, and hopefully some things will happen between now and then, um, at least insofar as the immigration issue is concerned, so we can get a longer-term spending bill. Um, uh, we've already, we're already um, almost four months into the current uh, fiscal year, and these spending bills are just kicking the can down the road. They're temporary, temporary, temporary. And uh, the Republicans are not exactly monolithic, on how uh, on how to do spending, and then the Demo- the Democrats are very divided. What happened in this particular instance was the Democrats painted themselves into the to a corner some time back when they said no more continuing resolutions, meaning no more temporary spending bills, unless and until we get a fix. On DACA. Now, the irony of all of that is that the president, Republicans in the Congress, and Democrats in the Congress all agree that we need a fix for DACA. So this isn't this isn't Obamacare, kill it or keep it alive. This is how do we get a DACA fix? And the Republicans want some extra stuff. They don't want to just deal with the, the, the dreamers. Uh, we're using these terms, and, of course, it refers to, 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 to Americans. Uh, well, they're yeah. not actually Americans. To, no, well, to, no, uh, they're, they're, they're to, alien immigrants. To, yeah, they're to, alien immigrants. They're alien immigrants. To, yeah, they, 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 they came to America as children by parents, and they were here illegally. They've been here a long time. Um, most of it, it, to qualify as a true so-called dreamer, you have to have a clean slate. You have to have no uh, no outstanding uh, taxes due, uh, and, and so on. And then the question is, 
what do we do about them? And do we give them legal status and a pathway to citizenship? And, and there's differences of opinion on that, but it's a very, very sympathetic audience that somewhere between 80 and 90% of Americans say, yes, let's make them legal. Republicans agree with making them legal. They disagree on all the details. The president agrees on making them legal. The Democrats agree. What the Democrats, the box they got themselves into was to say, we're not going to fund government until this is resolved. And by doing that, they set themselves up for the criticism that Democrats are placing illegal immigrants, albeit sympathetic ones, above the interests of the American people in keeping government open. And that narrative was beginning to stick in recent days and weeks, and, the, and, and that's what frightened the Democrats, at which point it was, hey, we need to get government back going. We don't want to be portrayed as favoring a, a group of immigrants, however sympathetic, against all of America and, and the funding and, and functioning of government. That was the problem for them. And meanwhile, you've got a really interesting development of up to 25 or 30 so-called moderates, a bipartisan group, meeting to, to come back to the leaders of both parties saying, this is nuts. Well, we need so Alan, to Alan, fix Alan, this. Alan, hold on for a second. That, yeah? Hold on for a second. Let me... Let me go. Let me go to Sharmla real quick because I, I want to get Sharmla's take on one thing that you point out. <clears throat> did did the Democrats overplay the American sympathy? I mean, it's known that the American public almost uh, three to one is in favor of some sort of solution for uh, the the program that we know as the Deferred Action Against Childhood Arrivals or DACA. It, did did Chuck Schumer overplay that card? I absolutely agree with Alan. Um, I, as I said before, I think the Democrats had not a lot of leverage in in this negotiation. Yes, they believe they have the moral high ground, but that's not going to carry them very far. So I do agree with Alan's assessment. I think it was spot on that you know this sympathy of well you know. Donald Trump said that he wanted to get something done for the Dreamers, and now he's not. So the governments are refusing to, so the Democrats are refusing to compromise. That had about 24 hours of traction, and then the narrative turned. Just as Alan said, suddenly it became, okay, Democrats are prioritizing this quite small group, right? It's about 800,000 individuals who are considered to be Dreamers, but this quite small group of individuals over the vast majority of the American people, and that's not governing either. Yes, right. they might be right, but it seems like I think the American people's appetite for that fight right now wasn't there. And yes, it's there within a, you know, a fervent portion of the, of the democratic base. But the truth right. is that, you know, that base doesn't have anywhere else to go. Right. So we, the Democrats got a, are more afraid of losing independent voters than they are of losing that truly left, left leaning base. Right. We've got a caller. Caller on the 267 area code. You're on with Backroom Politics. What's your question? Well, I guess I have a comment, and I think um, I think what it's done is it's exposed that the Democrats and many Republicans is 
favoring people that are in the country illegally, overfunding the military, overfunding people that work for the government, overfunding legal American citizens. And um, I'm glad that there wasn't any kind of a deal cut because what we've seen with immigration for 30, 40 years is you get amnesty with the promise of enforcement, but you never get enforcement. So even if they gave theoretically Trump the wall ending chain migration and the diversity visa lottery. Well, you can say you're going to build the wall, but you have to appropriate the money for it. They, they said they were going to build 700 miles of fencing in 06. It had bipartisan support. Even Hillary Clinton voted for it. They never appropriated the money. But even if you appropriate the money, before you put the first brick on the wall, you're going to get hit with 1,000 lawsuits. Before you end chain migration or the diversity visa lottery, you're going to get hit with 1,000 lawsuits. So at this point, you know, it's to me, it's uh, trust but verify. So, you know, unless you get any kind of real enforcement first, I don't think anybody should get legalization. And I think a lot of Americans feel that way. You know, you have the hard extremist left uh, who may feel differently, but a lot, most of the country realizes that open borders and, and the trade deals, too, for that matter, they're different sides of the same coin, are absolutely killing Americans and preventing, you know, Americans from getting uh, bigger paychecks and inflation adjusted wages. So it's a big loss for the open borders crowd. All right. Thank you very much. We'll be on hold and you continue to listen. Uh, Admiral Ken, Carl brings up a good, you know, good point here is all of these programs, whether you call it DACA, whether you call it uh, uh, Pathway to Citizenship, whether you call it Visa Chamber, the bottom line here is, is that immigration has never been truly funded from an enforcement standpoint, the way it needs to, considering our, you know, bring your tired, your hungry, your poor. Well, I, I guess I think what we're seeing is the, um, the, the, the fruits of, of, of internal conflict. And you bring it up just by, by asking the question. Um, and that's the fact that this country is a country of immigrants. And I think at some level, it's hard to say no to people who want to come here from nothing uh, to pursue uh, what heretofore has been called the American dream. Um, I think that the caller is right that in that any time um, an issue that appears to be as black and white as the papers in front of us comes up, it gets less black and white. It gets less black and white um, with the, um, um, the the insertion of politics. So, um, you know, I think I think, uh, however, relating it to um, the the challenge that we're having with regard to trade and NAFTA and some of the other trading agreements, that's an oversimplification. Um, and I think that each one of these items needs to be taken on its own and and looked at. Um, on its own to understand what the what the long term and what the long term impacts are going to be. I for one believe that NAFTA has created jobs, especially in my my my, my adopted state of Texas. It is it is it has been a boon for um, for uh, uh, consumer goods and to some extent for uh, for oil and gas. Uh, that may or may not be true for the uh, for, for other states. Um, so one. You know, there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all approach to anything that we do. There's just too many, there are too many uh, political mouths to feed, and there's too many 
um, I guess, uh, self-interested politicians um, that are focused on doing something to keep themselves in office versus doing what's right for the country. And, Sharma, how, how do the Democrats offset that argument that the caller brought up that says, hey, you guys were willing to go to the mats, shut down our government over illegal aliens, people who aren't even supposed to be in the country anyway. How do the Democrats fight that that, that charge? Well, I think that that charge wasn't accurate in this case. You know, Chuck Schumer offered over a billion dollars to be appropriated for the border wall and, you know, I think up to 2.7 million for uh for enhanced border security or sorry, 2.7 billion for enhanced border security measures. So, I think that that argument that the Democrats weren't willing to give and weren't willing to, you know, enhance enforcement and um, you know, contribute to that aspect of the of the president's immigration agenda is completely false. They, I mean, they explicitly said, look, we will give you the wall for the dreamers. And it was a more than generous offer. But, and yet the president rejected it because all of a sudden he said, no, I want more. And so you, I think that that notion that the, that the Democrats are being stingy or not, you know, contributing towards, towards border security is a bit bogus. Alan, is, is is what Charm was saying true? I mean, is is there validity to the fact that we're only hearing one side of the Democrat story? Well, you know, we we could this, we could take any one of these points that the caller made, Ken, Sharmila, you, me, and we could debate it. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, there is no question that uh, Chuck Schumer, um, uh, just to, to pick one. Uh, made a made a a major concession he made that concession on behalf of democrats but without fully consulting democrat democrats took an enormous amount of heat for so the president rejected <laughs> it <laughs> let's acknowledge uh and and uh and then the the a number of the democrats uh, put an enormous amount of heat on schumer he has since made a specific public point of withdrawing the offer um and and I don't have a quarrel with him for doing that. You you know you're in a negotiation. You make an offer. It's not accepted, and then you go back uh, and and start over. But he he made a, a very controversial uh, uh, move for which he took an enormous amount of uh, of, of grief. Is 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 all I'm trying to say. Well, when the caller was talking about um, uh, how we. we we talk about how we're going to do things or we agree that we're going to build, quote, a wall years ago when with a number of Democrats uh, supported it. It was a very different kind of proposal, first of all. It wasn't to, to build a 2,000-mile wall. Um, it was to build uh, appropriate physical barriers. Um, we already had some. We've spent billions since enha- enhancing physical barriers we've got other several hundred miles of of area where we still know there are illegal border crossings where a wall could arguably be of help whether it's a good good expenditure of funds or not different it's a different debate john kelly has said of the president uh, he was not well informed when he started and his uh, knowledge is evolving very logical and 
heavily pushed back by the president who deeply resents anyone saying he's not always known everything and is always brilliant. So we, we've, we've got the president shifting his views. We've got a Congress which has moved away from the so-called gang of eight immigration proposal of just a few years ago. We've got members of the, of the, uh, the Democratic Party who realize, wow, um, we, we've, we've overstepped, we've trapped ourselves, we've got deep divisions among ourselves. There is one group, I will say, that continues to be pretty united on this, and it's, it's a group I'll call the CDPC. The CDPC is the Coalition of Democratic Presidential Candidates. They <laughs> all, They all opposed this deal. They all still wanted to want to be on the side of, of the dreamers, even if it's destructive to many other members of, of the, of the democratic party. I, there are all kinds of divisions out here that are fascinating. Right. But let's go over a couple of those people that you're talking about in the CPDC and Sharma, I'm going to ask you to, to verify. We're talking about senators like Kristen Gillibrand of New York. You would agree with that Sharma? Yes. Uh, we're talking about uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren, the senator out of Massachusetts. She's a part of this. Cory Booker, New Jersey, also part of this. Carmilla Harris, the senator, junior senator out of California, also part of this. Bernie Sanders, the independent, is part of this CPDC. Is, is this... Could the accusation, Sharma, be made that there is some grandstanding going on by some of those Democrats we just listed instead of instead of them losing the forest through the fog, had they really come together and worked in a bipartisan manner, they could have fixed and prevented this shutdown? I think it's less grandstanding and more uh, Trump entropy towards the president. So I think that the the real common denominator was not wanting to give an inch on on some of the president's policy agenda that they viewed as as prejudiced and racist. So you know, for example, the wall. Um, I think that that's where you run into, uh, and I think Alan is right. There is some opportunism there, but I think it is more of a a principled stand, and you notice that it came primarily from women and minorities. Yeah. And, and, and Admiral Ken, I, w- I want to go to you on this one because I, first I've got a comment about all this. The, the one thing I've noticed in about my 30 years of being involved in immigration enforcement in some capacity or another, whether it was uh, alien migrant interdiction on the high seas down the Florida Straits during the Cuban and Haitian boat lifts, uh, whether it's helping develop immigration enforcement policy, whether it's being part of a program known as uh, Secure Border Initiative, which was a $1 billion program that flopped, but it included and has, and they have been building since 2006 a wall by the Secure Border Initiative. Uh, and Admiral Ken, I want your opinion. To me, it sounds like that the vast majority of the American electorate does not 
truly understand the complexity of immigration policy and immigration as a whole. Do you agree? Uh, I do indeed. And um, I I recently, um, as an example, um, I think that there there was a faint attempt uh, back in the early days uh, of our of our um, second war in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan to try to tie drugs to some of the things that were going on in the world. Um, you know, we've got we've got um, a problem with crime and drugs on the border uh, between the U.S. and Mexico for one simple reason. There is a demand for drugs in the United States, and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the cartels in Mexico are supplying that need. And so on one hand, you've got a group of people yelling and screaming, you know, build a wall, build a wall, build a wall, and make the Mexicans pay for it. And, and I would probably say a good number of the, of, the, of the people that are screaming that are basically you know, turning a blind eye and a deaf ear uh, to the uh, to the to the fact that as they go down they buy their their buy buy, buy uh, drugs for you know for their personal enjoyment even for sale that they're generating that they're generating part of the uh, of the problem. Uh, I recently completed a, a trip down to um, 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 Key West with my spouse and we pointed out that um, we were uh, we were just within a few moments a few uh, feet from. Jayat uh, of South, Joint Interagency Task Force South, whose main job is to stem drug traffic uh, in the Caribbean coming into the United States. This is a problem that most people don't really understand, have not really uh, thought out. And I guess the one question that I would have had for the, uh, for the caller was, are you a person who believes that building a 2,000-mile wall is going to solve this problem? Because if his answer had been, yeah, then he would basically go into that category of people in this country who are uninformed about the nature and all the challenges around conducting immigration, uh, ex- executing immigration law, and, and, and developing immigration policy. All right, hold on. We got a caller. Uh, we got a caller on the line. Caller, you're on with Backroom Politics. What's your question? Uh, yeah, I was on earlier. I did. I would like to, if I can, have a kind of an answer to some of the. Or, responses to some of what was being said. Um, Specifically, two things. Number one, the idea that Schumer made major concessions. Again, they agreed bipartisan to build 700 miles of fencing in 06. Not 2,000 miles, uh, but 700 miles of fencing. They built about 10 to 15 miles. Um, Schumer agreed to so hold, hold uh, on, caller. Hold, hold on, caller. Hold on, caller. Let me yeah. let me let me stop you right there. That that fact because we deal in facts and. Not trying to show up or anything, but that that fact is incorrect. Uh, I know for Which a fact, fact, as somebody as somebody who has worked on the southern border on those programs, that it is not right. just 700 miles of fence line. There is fence line that covers a lot more ground, and electronic surveillance motions that cover a lot more ground under SBI. Right, but the Secure Fence Act of, of, of 06 was about built was supposed to. It didn't, but it was supposed to, to allow for 700 miles of fencing. That was the original deal. Now, it didn't do close to that, but, but that's what it was supposed to do. And Schumer was offering $1.8 billion of, of border wall fencing, which was far short of what the estimates have been that you date for a real fence, which would be $20 billion. Plus, 
he was saying that he would agree to it. But unless you actually appropriate the money for it, then it's not real. It, it's not actually happening. Uh, plus, Trump had been calling for months for an end to the diversity visa lottery and chain migration, and none of those you know, needs were met. E-verified, nothing was e-verified, because if you don't have worksite enforcement, you know, then, then that's a, you know, you're going to take out one of the big disincentives for illegals coming into the country, because you can't just build a wall. So I, I have some pretty strong disagreements about the idea that the um, – whether it's the Democrats or a lot of the open borders Republicans, that they were making significant concessions, because they weren't. <laughs> they really weren't. It's no different than the three other amnesty attempts where it's the, uh, you know, a token effort towards enforcement, which you're probably not going to get, but you're going to get immediate amnesty. So I just right. I disagree with I disagree with that whole idea. I don't I do not agree with that at all. OK, appreciate the call. We're up against a break here. Caller, um, really quickly, I got a couple of questions before we go to the break uh, and the caller. Great caller, by the way. Let me go to Alan. Alan Moore, it seems to me <clears throat> this shutdown was more Russian roulette than anything. It could have backfired, which traditionally does backfire on the Republican Party when we do a shutdown. We saw it back in uh, 93, We saw it back in 2013. Uh, did this pay off for the Republican Party, or is this going to hamper them leading into – 2018 midterms. Neither one. Um, there was there was there was no real winner here. And in a week or two, this will all be a history. I think though the the the, the loser, the, in my in my humble opinion, there was no winner, but there was definitely a loser, and the loser was everybody. Um, when the Congress can't function, when Washington can't function. Whether it's the White House, the the Senate, the House, the Republicans, or the Democrats aren't able to get stuff done and spend an enormous amount of time trying to blame the others for the for for the collective failure. Everybody loses, and the and and the public disdain towards Washington. Uh, it becomes that much more intense, and from a political standpoint, it feeds the argument to throw everybody out because they can't get it done. So there might be a uh, a winner for this battle or that battle, but the war, everybody is losing in Washington today. And Admiral Ken, there's one one point I want to make, and and I want your insight on is we saw a lot of Republicans. We saw Kellyanne Conway making the talking head circuit. We saw Vice President Mike Pence at an air base in the Middle East. Uh, We saw uh, several of the surrogates for the White House on the talking head circuit, basically saying that uh, the Democrats are... uh, They'd rather see illegal aliens rather than paid military. They'd rather see illegal aliens rather than paid border patrol. Uh, they even went so far, Kellyanne Conway said, uh, they'd rather have illegal aliens than firefighters, knowing full well that firefighters aren't paid by the federal government in 90% of the instances. 
that's the, just the one reason why. That's just one reason why Killian. I know we don't, but Admiral Ken, the question I have for you is: Did the Republicans overplay their hand on the politicalization of the military and law enforcement community? Um, you know, I, I don't think so. Because the, really? the, the real the, no, the real Trump supporters are, are eating that that stuff up. I mean, they're they're going, yeah, 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 yeah. You're putting the military in jeopardy. When when the, the the bottom line truth is, if forces are deployed, they're staying deployed. They're not pulling them back in the shelters or anything else. I mean, the guys and gals that are that are that are that are, that are manning um, the fire bases in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, they're still there. They're still getting their bullets. They're still getting their food. The ships that are at sea are still conducting anti-submarine warfare and 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 uh, and, um, uh, military presence operations. That's all a bunch of crap. But the fact of the matter is, the folks that that Trump is playing to, that uh, that people like Kelly and Conway and Mike Pence are playing to, they're eating that stuff up, and and it it will will make no difference to them whatsoever. This is this is that twenty-five to twenty-six, twenty-seven percent. That's that's booing um, uh, Trump's um, uh, popularity right now. The the rest of the country is like going, yeah, you know what? They're showing the same level of interest and engagement as they do for everything else that does not touch their lives directly. Immigration being one of them, um, and 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 the the the, uh, the general state of, of politics in general. It doesn't matter until it hits them at home, and at that point they get engaged. But no, I don't think they overplayed their hands. You know, the same folks that have been listening, the same ones that are listening now. So around the horn, does this affect – does this shut down? Well, first of all, i got two questions around the horn before we go to break. Number one, uh, are we – could the government shut down in three weeks? Alan Moore. Sure, it could. I don't I – don't, I'm not predicting that it will, but it, it, it keeps real pressure on, um, and uh, we don't know. I don't think it will, but it certainly could. Sharmila Chari. Uh, I am less optimistic than Alan. I think it can and it will. I think that, unfortunately, as you pointed out, uh, Chuck Schumer is now between a rock and a hard place, between the swing electorate and his fervent base. And hes uh, I don't see a way how he gets out of that without really sticking, without really drawing a line in the sand this time about uh, Dreamer Deal. And if if there is not a, a scheduled um, a, a scheduled session on creating a bill to protect dreamers and you know on immigration, Admiral Ken, not to. Um, I, I'm 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 inclined to agree with Sharmila. Um, and, and I what I'll say is I think keeping didn't the government you guys pay attention to what just I, happened? It's not going to happen think, again. I think uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I think that. That that going through the steps of keeping the government open for three weeks for three weeks is just plain stupid, and all we're doing is that we're kicking the can down the road. Instead of it being a few months, it's it's three weeks, or you know, it's not even thirty yards. And uh, I, I think it just under it underlines it underlines part of what Alan was saying, the fact that the country does not win. That this just further uh, underscores the inability for. Um, the the Congress and and the White House to get their act together, pass a budget. That's the part that really hurts the military is the fact that they can't get a budget in place for more than a year. That's stupid. Yeah. Well, actually, 
the correct answer here is unless they are really taking some legalized marijuana hits up there on the hill, there's no way they shut down the government again. That that would just almost backfire on everybody. Horrible idea. Anyway, with that in mind, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to talk about some breaking news that is happening here out of Washington, D.C. Uh, apparently, Special Counsel Robert Mueller wants to have a little discussion with the President of the United States. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics live from the National Capital Region in the Delmarva region. This is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Admiral Ken Carradine, Shari, and the Honorable Alan Moore. Hey, um, we've got some 
some we've got some interesting developments happening in the Russia case. But before we go to that, we've got a caller. Oh, let's go to him. Caller in the two oh six area code. You're on with politics. The question. Hey, thank you for taking my call. How you guys all doing today? Doing fantastic. What's your comment or question, sir? Yeah, I, I got a question. When is this country and people on the conservative side going to kind of wake up and kind of understand that Trump is a joke? You want to expand on that one? <laughs> um, sure. So let's put it this way. Trump is a blatant liar. He's lied over 2,000 times in the last couple years, in the last year. He put the first black president on blast, making up fake things. He has people believing that actual news with real people that are actually doing their job is fake, having people turn to alternative media and seek the approval that they want in order to further his agenda. He has made blatant racist comments. He has turned around and split this country, making anybody who believes anything different than what any conservative does, that they are a liberal, and painting Americans, Americans, as the enemy. That's what I'm talking about. All right. Well, we appreciate we appreciate. We'll put you back on hold. Um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of very emotional views on the president right now. Uh, particularly with the past few weeks of his comments regarding uh, shithole countries, and we should probably take him in from Norway rather than any anywhere else, along with a litany of other things. But the big news we've got to deal with today is uh, the Washington Post is apparently running an article tomorrow morning that they have put online so stating I, that... Oh, go ahead, Alan Moore. Yeah, I just... Are we going to respond to the to him or move on i mean i i just we're moving on question. no no we're, we're, we're um, I, I, he made a comment he made his comment we're going to move on i think uh there's well, a lot he, of ground he, we got to cover today the yeah i, I, I do want to you know he's yeah i mean he's saying when will republicans wake up and i just you know i it, it, and and that that he's been extremely divisive and so on i just i just want to say that that <laughs> <laughs> that those of us on this show who are Republicans are among the president's biggest critics. Having said that, we we try to s- stick with the facts. Um, I know what he refers to when he said the president has lied over 2,000 times. I don't agree with that characterization. However, I'm not trying to say he doesn't he doesn't lie, doesn't say untruths, doesn't repeat them. It's one of the things that. That so distresses it. He is not the guy who started the divisions in this country. He has certainly exploited them to a very disturbing uh, degree. Um, I think I'm certainly not one who's going to give our our press, our media, a free pass on its coverage. I do not join the president in his over-the-top criticism and use of the term fake news and the desire to change the libel laws. I think those things are all extraordinarily troubling and dangerous. But I do think he has a point that the press has, from, from early on, not without justification, sort of jumped onto this um, 
constant criticism of of the president never acknowledge anything that he might have done or said that might have in any way been positive so but but he didn't he kind of brings that out but he certainly didn't start that so i i just and there and there is a group a shrinking small group that will ride with this guy uh over a cliff um who Agreed. who believe everything he says and so on. So, you know, we're sitting here trying to comment on it and reflect upon it um, and uh, uh, make our own personal, uh, have our own personal struggles, our own personal peace and so on. So uh, it's not that his, that, 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 the, that the caller's opinion isn't shared by a fair number of people, but I just wanted to say a couple of words to add perspective and then we can move All right. On. So, very, very well said. Very well said, Alan. Appreciate it. But I do. We do have to talk about a lot of what's happening today in the special counsel's office. Uh, the breaking news is ongoing right now. The uh, news coming out of the Washington Post. The Washington Post is reporting that uh, the special counsel Robert Mueller is in fact uh, preparing to approach the White House for a special conversation with. President Trump regarding the departure of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and former FBI Director James Comey. Uh, On top of that, it was also disclosed today that the special counsel's office had a uh, very detailed conversation with said former FBI Director James Comey, at which point he provided the infamous notes that he discussed about during uh, testimony on the Hill. Uh, we also have a we also have breaking news coming out of the special counsel's office. Uh, the fact that they are they are now also or they have also uh, approached or will talk to uh, the Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions, in which case he will not be able to wave off questions the way he was able to in the Senate testimony he gave on the Hill. This is a real big, serious deal. Let's start with, uh, let's start at the bottom and work our way up. Uh, Sharma, Charlie. Sharma is hardly the bottom. No, that's not what I meant. That that didn't come out right. That so did not come out right. Sharma, I have... You're tops tops with me, Sharma. I hope you know what I meant when I said start at the bottom, I mean, of the pecking order in Washington's Trump administration. Uh, Wow, that really came out wrong. Okay, let's let's move on. Anyway, the um, (laughs) uh, Charmley, with the announcement that they are, in fact, uh, in possession of James Comey's notes, uh, the infamous notes that he talked about in his testimony to the Senate is—is this—is this a sign that we're starting to see a real deep dive in the special counsel's office? There might be smoke there. Uh, I mean, I think they've been doing a deep dive this whole time, but I think that this adds further fuel to the fire of the narrative we were talking about. Uh, six months ago, or however long it was since James Comey was fired, I feel like it was 19 years. But I think that you know, again, having these having these notes, having these uh, these contemporaneous observations, 
helps push back against the president's narrative of, oh, this is all fake news and I have tapes and yada, yada, yada. However, however he wants to dispute other people's characterization of events, he never has evidence of that other than saying, oh, but that's fake news. Right now there's actual documented evidence of the things that people have been saying this whole time or the things that the news media has been speculating the whole time. So I think it's, you know, this is, I think this certainly is a shift when all of a sudden something that was rumored in the news is now really coming out into the daylight. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more developments of this kind to see, you know, corroborating evidence of, of the events that happened around uh, Mr. Comey's firing and potentially things that happened earlier during the campaign or related to meetings that you know, campaign officials or current administration members had with his Russian officials to see if there is, if there's really fire here. Charmot, as the attorney on the line right now and somebody I hope did well in criminal procedure in law school, are you, do you get the sense that we're starting to see maneuvering that we may see another round of either high-level subpoenas or more indictments coming down from grand jury? I think certainly. I think this is the this is the first step to it, right? He's the um, the special counsel has now started doing these, as you said, these in-depth interviews with much more key players. We're not at the Carter's Page and George Papadopoulos level anymore. We're at Steve Bannon, Jeff Sessions, Jared Kushner, the president. These are the key players in the in the um, in the campaign and the administration. This is like the meat in the stew. So I think the the outcome of these of these these interviews and this testimony is going to be what informs any upcoming indictments or further charges. Alan Moore, this has got to take the news coming out of the special counsel's office today has got to take this uh, pucker factor up to a new level in the White House. Are, does the fact that the special counsel's office has shown its card saying we're bringing in the president, is, is this a sign that A, this may be winding down and there's nothing there, which is the hope of the, the White House and the Trump family, or B, is this something that, you know, is this a flash across the bow saying, get legal counsel ready because we're going to come in firing all guns a-blazing? So, so maybe I'm an outlier. I don't see news in today's report because – Really? First, first of all, first of all, you use the phrase that they're bringing in the president. No, they're not. What they're doing is making public the fact, something that everyone has known, and we've been reading about now for weeks, that, that Mueller wants to talk to the president. And we know that uh, maybe a month ago, the president's lawyers had a couple of meetings with Mueller people trying to talk about ground rules for how they could answer questions, how the president could answer questions of uh, of the Mueller investigation that that was that was broadly widely reported. This is all part of that, and my reading of this story uh, is that yeah, uh, we really want to talk to the president, and the and the legal team is again trying to figure out how they would do this. It, the, 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 in our in our modern history, we have had. Um, uh, depositions under oath, um, the famous ones with uh, <laughs> with President Clinton, um, uh, where he denied certain things. 
Um, uh, in the case of Ronald Reagan, um, there were written, it was a written interrogatory with him. Um, it, it, it's, it, there's a lot of room between those two. I see in this story from today's post about this that there's some talk about, well, maybe we could have a certain group of questions uh, answered face-to-face, and we could do others in writing. This is a negotiation, um, and Mueller uh, is interested in getting the information. People who are professionals in this field say it really makes a difference to be able to talk face-to-face. You can, you can pick up nuance. You can have follow-up questions. You can watch uh, body movements, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and if you are a White House and a legal team that knows that your client in this case, the president uh, lacks discipline and and exudes confidence. Um, uh, most lawyers do not see that as a uh, as a winning combination, and they see the potential for this president to be uh, to to get to get caught up in a trap of his own making. So, um, you know. <laughs> I don't see any news here. We've always known and we've talked about in the past how Mueller will want to talk to the president, but it's got to be a negotiation. He doesn't have the power to simply summon the president before a grand jury, for example. Um, It'll be a private interview, ground rules uh, to be worked out. It may not be face-to-face. That's all that we're hearing about here. Let me me clarify the Washington Post story, if I can, because the Washington Post is is reporting that Whereas they wanted to bring him in as far as the broader investigation, it now looks like the article that came out this afternoon by the Washington Post, they want to specifically target the departure of Comey and Flynn, which, Ken, maybe I'm misreading this. That looks like this has gone from Russia uh, collusion to more obstruction of justice possibly. Well, I, I'm I'm inclined to agree with Alan that um, really you know yeah and and here's why I mean it goes back to the first subject that we talked the first thing we talked about at the beginning of the show is that there's so many rumors running around um, and, and and don't get me wrong do I do I think that there's a there there with regard to the, some of the misdeeds of the president and his staff I absolutely do. Um, and I even predicted some um, some amount of time on, on an earlier show that um, the thing that I think that will cause the president the greatest amount of trouble are probably not the things that we are that we we, we think they will. So just as, as for instance, we've talked about money laundering on this uh, with regard to the president's dealings with Russia. We've talked about the collusion as to whether the president. Um, worked uh, had the Russians working on his behalf uh, prior to the election, and now we're talking about obstruction of justice with regard to Comey's firing. You know, the president and his team um, present such what my naval aviator friends would call a target-rich environment. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I would know where to what to shoot at first. I really don't. So, uh, you know, I, I really think that. Um, you know, watching the the process play out, 
um, and um, looking at what we know to be true. And quite frankly, out of all the things that we've talked about on the show, the one thing that we know to be true is that the Russians interfered in our election. Now, the question is, did the president know it? Did the president support it? Did the president urge it on? Well, some would say yes. If you go back to that press conference where he basically uh, implored the Russians to, to, to leak Hillary Clinton's emails. So, uh, again, it, you know, for my money, you know, obstruction of justice, yeah, that might get him. Uh, it might not. Um, the money laundering thing, yeah, it might get him. It might not. But for, my, from, from, you know, for me, the big picture issue is um, maintaining the sanctity of the American election process. And when the president of the United States turns a blind eye and a deaf ear to the assessments of every one of his intelligence agencies just because it makes him look bad, yeah, you know, that's the one that makes me hungry. So, yeah, I, but, you know, I got to go with Alan. Admiral Ken, let me ask you this question, I, and I, I see your point, but if, in fact, the president has committed what would be considered in various states and federal jurisdictions a felony, whether it was obstruction of justice, which can also be a misdemeanor charge in certain jurisdictions, whether it's obstruction of justice or as high as money laundering, racketeering, uh, you know, we, we've heard all kinds of possible charges thrown around. Shouldn't the president be, if in fact these allegations are investigated and proven to be true, should the president not be brought forward to answer to those charges? He is not above the law. Is that accurate? Uh, I, I would agree that uh, with what you've said, and I think the 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 uh, uh, the nut of it is how is he brought forward and how is he held account. I don't want to see I don't want to see anything done to this president that has not been done to other presidents who found themselves in similar circumstances. I mean, Ronald Reagan got to do uh, a written response. Bill Clinton had to do a uh, a recorded deposition um you know i i don't i don't i would have to defer to people like sharmila and, and dan lipner as to what is the appropriate process and what is the standard process for 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 uh, for getting to the truth from uh the highest elected official in the land but i don't i don't want there to be any special things done to this president to basically uh, uh plumb to the plumb out the truth of what's going on and the main reason i don't want to do that is because there's already a significant uh, uh, level of thought that in this country that they've gone after this guy. Well, granted, he's done some pretty stupid things, and he said some pretty stupid things that makes going after him, you know, a pretty easy thing. Uh, you know, the, the caller that opened up the first the segment of, of this uh, of this segment, the first of the segment, I think touched on some of those. But you know what? In the in the interest of doing what's right, doing what's fair. And just because the Democrats did it or somebody else did it doesn't give you license to, to behave in, a, in an inappropriate manner. But I want, I want the process to follow out, to go, to go along the way it's supposed to. If he's guilty, then impeach his butt. If he's not, you know what, let's, let's get on with trying to get the country governed. And you know what, another government shutdown in three weeks is just stupid, and I, I want to see the end of that kind of behavior. And, well, Alan Moore, how does how – does... Ken's point conflict or does it conflict with the idea of, you know, the president, although the highest ranking official in the land, still has to answer if he's committed crimes. 
you know, how do we balance that? You know, does impeachment the only way? Do we do what some have even speculated as being possible? Go through the state attorney or the state attorney general in New York, run charges that way against a seated president or somebody who could come out of the presidency and still be charged? I, yeah, I don't see that latter uh, occurring, and that not certainly not while while Robert Mueller uh, is in place, and I I don't expect that to change. I, I think the 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 question the the point that 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 Ken so accurately makes is no, he's not above the law. Um, yes, he's going to have to uh, answer some questions. the The only question is, how is that done? Is it done in some new way that hasn't been used before that would be arguably unfair? Um, there's a negotiation that started weeks and weeks ago. It is continuing. How, what, what subjects are on the table and how does he answer them? Just because this story focuses on Comey um, and Flynn does not mean does not mean that those are the only subjects that Mueller is interested in. Mueller, we know, is very interested in what the president did or did not know about conversations people around him, including his son and son-in-law, were having with the Russians um, uh, early in this uh, early in this campaign or in the middle of this campaign. The the, the whole question of collusion didn't just disappear. This story just happens to, to talk about those other subjects. But you can be sure that if, if for example, um, Donald Trump Jr. and or Jared Kushner had said, we had those meetings, we thought we were going to get something, we didn't get it, and no, never mentioned it to dad slash father-in-law, if they if they are consistent in their reports and there's no evidence that that the president ever heard, uh, it's a lot harder than to bring him in and say, "What did you know about that meeting?" On the other hand, if either of both of them said, "Yeah, it was part of the regular report. I mentioned it to him," the, that that issue that's the nugget of the group closest to the president, um, who the then candidate uh, to this uh, this collusion effort. Um, so. That, it, that didn't go away. It's just not part of this particular story. And uh, so this is going to get sorted out. Probably not. It's not going to be to everybody's satisfaction. If, for example, the Trump uh, uh, lawyers and the, the president himself says, no face-to-face. Give us the written questions. We'll give you responses. If you've got follow-up, we'll give those to you. Sorry, that's as good as we can do. That's probably as good as they can do. There may be a political cost associated with that Um, but but you know this president this president is notoriously self-confident in thinking that that uh you know he's smarter than everybody else he knows how to deal with lawyers he knows how to talk he's not going to get himself in trouble but when everybody around you is saying no 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 not worth it not worth it not worth it not worth it um you know, sometimes he does listen, and I, I, I just saw today or yesterday a story, a, a tale of, of Sean Spicer um, when uh, told that uh, uh, 
that there was some re- request for an uh, in-depth interview with him, I think from uh, from NBC. Right. And and he and he said uh, uh, Spicer strongly urged against it. Please don't do it. The timing's wrong. The the fat you and the president became indignant and said, "Why did we?" It said, "I know how to handle this stuff. Let's do well, it." That's, and that's and that's not the last interview. Yeah, as the as the, as they closed on the moment, the president said, "Who agreed to do this? Why are we doing this?" <laughs> and a little hard for Sean Spicer to say, "Well, actually, Mr. President, because you, you overruled me, my recommendation." Yeah. So, so, you know, but but this is high stakes. This is the you know the the president the, for all of the the dumb things he does, he's not an idiot, and he and and he does show some capacity for learning over time, and. And uh, my hunch is that, that he will be listening closely to what his advisors say about how to avoid pitfalls, accidental or purposeful uh, traps uh, that might be set for him and why it would be very risky to just go into an open-ended conversation. And he needs here's, to, here's to be I very get... disciplined. He needs to prepare, et cetera. Right, but here, here's where I get a um... – a, a kind of hang, a, a kind of hankering that Mueller is looking at several paths on this that started with the Russian collusion question, and it started unraveling from there into much bigger, broader issues. But the you know whether it's obstruction of justice, I think there's an obstruction of justice line of investigation. When you bring in Sessions, when you bring in Comey, when you get Comey's notes and you go that far down that DOJ path, that to me leads my thinking that, okay, obstruction of justice is definitely on the table. What comes out of the investigation, we will find out in due time. But that is, if I'm, if I'm in the White House or I'm on the president's, uh, legal team, I'm getting really nervous about that because uh, number one, I don't think they know what they've got. You know, when when, ha- when two, when at least one of your former staffers, in questionably senior staff, was wearing a wire and cooperating with the government, I think that that leads to all kinds of different problems. I think they've got a real problem here just on the interview with Jeff Sessions. I think bringing in Donald Trump is a whole new pot of worms that comes up because at one case, it's a no-win situation for the president. If he gives just a written testimony, well, how can we, how can we infer his sentiment off of written testimony? We can't. But no legal mind in, on the planet is going to advise this president, Donald J. Trump, to go into a situation which caught one of the great political communicators of our time, Bill Clinton, that, they said that that, that uh, video uh, deposition he gave was a flaming disaster, and nobody should put the president up to that. So I just think that there is a much bigger problem than the White House may play off. I think that it's a bigger problem than the White House truly believes. And my gut tells me, that this could pose in the next eight to 10 months, a serious political dilemma 
for Donald Trump and how he handles it. Does he? It, it could be something as serious as does he stay? Does he go? That's just my two cents. But the bigger well, question, Justin, is, Justin, Justin, there's nothing new that you have said other than it seems like it's a, a revelation to you. And the White House has been worrying about this for months. This is not new. The obstruction of justice potential is real. It's deep. It's frightening to, to not just his lawyers, but to his presidency. Um, and, and, uh, and all the pieces have been coming together. They're gonna, they will have to negotiate. They'll have to figure out some way. No, they're not all going to be satisfied. It is very perilous, um, and and uh, depending upon what the facts are, depending what's upon new, what the answers are to the questions. What's but, new? What's new is the use, the possible use of campaign funds to pay off the porn star. Now that's news. That, and that's not even yeah. that's not even the worst case scenario. That's not even the worst case scenario is what I think is new. And this is where I'm going with this is, and I, and I don't disagree with you, Alan, but I think what is new is, is that now, you know, it's been revealed that, that Comey has met for several hours with a top four cabinet official in the Trump administration, that being Jeff Sessions, the attorney general uh, met with James Comey. I think that the real news here is, is that they are starting to dig deep and they are starting to I think before they were still in the investigation mode this is what we would call they they are now building a case as opposed to investigating possible this is building a case stuff I think that they're doing that's the news to me and I may be I may be uh misreading it but to me you bring in sessions you're misreading the only thing you're misreading is the timing. They have building this, been building this case from day one. They've been talking to all of these people and, and filling in all these gaps, moving in the direction of talking higher and higher. And as you pointed out, they've, they've talked to Bannon. They've talked to Reince Priebus. Those guys were, were around at the time, to Jared Kushner now a couple of times, um, and, and <laughs> to, uh, to Donald Trump Jr., um, closing in on a conversation with uh, with the president, they, they've been building this case for the, I, a case, a case which may go nowhere, but gathering all the information possible, and nobody knows what they have except them. No one knows what kinds of conflicts, what kinds of of little tidbits uh, have been divulged where the inconsistencies are and so on they know and no one else knows and if you're donald trump and his legal team that has to scare the hell out of you admiral ken i i i think that like i said um you know the, the thing here is that donald trump presents such a target-rich environment i mean everything from from again using campaign funds uh to pay uh, pay off a former uh, uh, a former paramour. Um, so uh, you know, again, I just want to make sure that and and, and I and I, I have every faith that Mueller is going to do this. I just want to make sure that the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, such that at the end of this, whenever that comes, no one can credibly 
look back and say, yeah, uh, they didn't do they whoever they might be that you know the the special prosecutor members of his team did not do this the right way. Yeah, no, I hear you. All right. Well, we're obviously going to be keeping an eye on this. This is still developing uh, in the news cycle today. But with that, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little economics. The World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland is underway. The president is on his way at some point to Switzerland to go meet with various economic leaders at said conference, all on the same day that he's got a problem with foreign-made washers and dryers. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio, the best political talk show you've never heard of here from Washington, D.C. Stand by. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. I saw you last night and got that old feeling. When you came inside, I got that old feeling. The moment that you danced by. I felt a thrill, and when you caught my eye, my heart stood still. Once again, I seemed to feel that old yearning, and I knew the spark of love was still burning. There'll be no new romance for me, it's foolish to start for that old in my Backroom Politics. We'll be back momentarily. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back here for the last segment of the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live from the National Capital Region on Blog Talk Radio. This is uh, apparently I have to apologize. Apparently, some of you all at the break could hear some of the conversations. That I, what I thought was a closed mic, which all politicians should know, always assume the mic is hot. So that being said, thanks to Admiral Ken for pointing that out. I'm, I'm just glad I didn't say anything really bad. Or did I, Ken? I, it's not my job to judge, Justin. I just report to <laughs> Are you saying I said bad stuff, Ken? I'm hurt. I don't think I stuttered in my response, my friend. Press ahead. Press on. <laughs> I'll, I'll, give you the address send, I'll give you the address to send the check later. Yeah, great, great. I know exactly what I said. That was clean. Hey, uh, let's talk economics right now. So right now in the beautiful European country of Switzerland is the town of Davros, which is hosting the World Economic Summit, which is bringing together political and economic leaders from all across the globe, including one president, Donald J. Trump, who is uh, going to be en route to Davros to have several meetings with both political and economic leaders there in the uh, beautiful mountain community outside the Swiss Alps. The the big question here, and I'm going to start with you, Admiral Ken. What is what do you think of the expectation is that Donald Trump going to Davros? What does he get out of this, and what can we, as the American public, look at as a successful trip for the president? Well. If you remember, and I'm drawing, trying to draw a blank now, uh, what the name of the of the conference was. Uh, but the president likes rubbing shoulders with other uh, other world leaders. I think at probably some level, it's my opinion, though I have no credible evidence to validate this, um, that it 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 lends credibility to his um, his uh, role as president of the United States. Um, I think secondarily, um, he's got some notions some ideas as to how trade should be in the world. And I think probably trying to depend on um, uh, the trade representative or members of his cabinet or administration to go and explain it uh, to to his colleagues, uh, I think he feels he probably can do it better himself. Um, I think that uh, given uh, the current news about what's going on with regard to uh, possible payoffs, he probably needs to get out of the house a little bit. Alan Moore? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think that that uh, somebody in his circle stroked his ego and said, you know, Mr. President, I know you've trashed these international uh, organizations before as do-nothing, self-serving groups. Um, But you know something? There's some interesting folks there. They've got a history of some fascinating uh, high-level people, some interesting news occasionally comes out of these. Why not go before a group of people from around the world, most of whom think you're absolutely nuts and dangerous, and show them how stupid and wrong they are, and how you're neither, and talk about the priorities of your administration um, and your efforts to get uh, 
taxes, a tax cut plan and taxes back into line with the world. Talk about the economic results that uh, the U.S. economy has seen on your watch. Um, And uh, we know he likes to take full credit for all of those things. Go tell your story. Show them how thoughtful, reasonable, (coughs) and intelligent you are, and it'll be a win-win. You know, stick to this. We'll get a good speech. We'll work it out. We'll we'll get a we'll we'll uh, we'll tell this story. Um, We there won't be an opportunity, at least while he's making a formal presentation, to wander very much. Although he doesn't always stick to the script. Um, but but uh, I think that the that that there was an appeal to his uh, to his ego. A reminder, I think it was a year ago that Chinese President Xi was there and did himself uh, some good. Um, and this president would say, "Great idea! I want to do that. Get me a you know get me a good spot." He won't have trouble filling the room. Um, there's an enormous amount of curiosity about this man along with uh with with all the uh the the, the contempt um uh, and so that's what i think he'll he'll try to do if he could pull this off with some discipline he as, as, as ken said he could help himself just by not being raving crazy um it's well, kind of a low bar thing. well alan the positive low thing bar. right now is the, the positive thing is that the president is going to be at Davos without any of his so-called shithole countries being represented there. These are all the top leading economic countries. We're not going to see Nigeria. We'll probably see Norway. I, I don't. I don't know whether there's anybody from Nigeria there or not. It doesn't. It doesn't even matter. It's that. That's not. That's not going to be the issue. That's not. That's not going to. You know, he's he's basically said that that uh, that the reports of what happened in that meeting weren't weren't truthful. So he's he's going to play to a different audience. He's going to play to the the international movers and shakers, as as you said. It's 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 political leaders. It's economic leaders. It's also major business leaders, um, uh, philanthropists. I mean, it's a who's who of of uh, sort of money and power in the world, and uh, he sees himself as at the top of the heap, even though he's been contempt uh, shown contempt in the past. It's like, hey, why not? I can go and I could be the center of attention of that particular crowd. Hmm, that doesn't sound so bad. But My more to point, he can show mm-hmm. himself to be sort of even if he can. This is a challenge. Even tempered, thoughtful, assertive, articulate, um, you know, he could help himself. I mean, Admiral Ken, the, the, the one factor we have to look at when going into a place like the Global Economic Forum in Davos is can the president show humility? Does he have to? <laughs> I still stick with my third reason for him going. <laughs> Alan Moore, can, can I mean does does the president with all of the international turmoil? I mean, 
We still haven't fully patched up everything with Britain. Uh, there's still tension with uh, most of the EU countries now, uh, let alone the African Union members, etc. Does does the does the president have to show humility? And uh, now let me say ask that question, understanding the fact that you know can, should he and can he are two different things. That's like you have the right to remain silent. Whether you invoke that right is up to you. I don't, you know, I don't think showing humility is is what this is all about. Um, what he what he hopefully can avoid is uh, the kind of chest pounding and exaggeration of his fabulous impact that he is so inclined to follow. Um, it's if he could just. <laughs> It may seem like humility if he's just straightforward, factual, and reasonable. But he's got he's got some stuff he can talk about um, that that if if put in the, in, in proper context um, won't won't sound like the Donald Trump we're used to, but could but could uh, spin a, a a very helpful narrative to um, uh, some of what he's tried to do to improve uh, the economic outlook for this country and urge uh, uh, lower, t- lower taxes, um, control of the borders, less regulation uh, uh, with, uh, with good economic results to follow. That, that, that I think, will be his message. And, and, and uh, uh, whatever one thinks about the actual facts that have contributed over the last year to things, um, I think he gets some credit, uh, not as much as he wants, but a lot less than many people are willing to afford him, which is zero. Um, and so we'll, we'll see. We'll see. It's an interesting test. It's a different crowd for him. It's, it's not these international leaders. I don't know who else, what other leaders are there. A lot of the, the meetings he got, has, has gone to, G7 and so on, you know, he's dealing with heads of state, and he can have side meetings and kind of get to know them a little bit, all of which is useful this isn't. This is a different crowd. This is. Uh, this is um, money, power, these influence. Captains. These are the writ, captains writ of large. industry. Yes, some politicians um, uh, and uh, you know, and, and economic thinkers, and and uh, we'll uh, uh, we'll see. It's it, it'll get a lot of coverage, a lot so, of visibility. It's an interesting opportunity for him. So here's the funny thing, and this is how I'm interested to see how the president plays this out. On the day that he's supposed to depart, or within 48 hours of departing for this global economic summit to talk about you know, global economic issues, the president is in the Oval Office signing off on tariffs on everything from solar sails to washer and dryers that are manufactured overseas – you know, we're looking at starting a trade war with some of our closest allies in the Far whoa, East. Whoa, whoa, no, 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 no. Hang on, hang on, hang on. What's you that? need to understand what it is he's doing. Okay. So here's how this works. When this is not his threat to to slap tariffs on uh, imports from China. Okay, which is a, a whole no, different putting, authority that a president. No, no. Listen to this. So the way. What, what we're talking about with the 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 uh, the solar the solar cells and the uh, 
uh, washing machines, they, they are country-specific. They are, they are company, uh, typically, uh, oftentimes company-specific. Right. The, in this instance, this, it is, how the system in this works. instance, the, hold on, Alan. In this no, instance, this is my the, understanding is that it is like Samsung, LG, both Korean no, manufacturers. No, 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 listen to me. Listen to me. Here's how it works. U.S. companies who feel like foreign competitors are cheating petition the U.S. government saying these Chinese um, uh, solar uh, panel manufacturers are cheating and it's hurting us. The Commerce Department, I used to run the division that did this research. They have a dedicated group of several hundred people. They, they receive these petitions. They do a preliminary investigation. Then they do an in-depth investigation. The question is, are these countries and companies selling product below their cost? And it's called dumping. Are they dumping a right. product into America? So step one in the process is, are they dumping? So in the case of – so the finding that had to have occurred months ago – was that LG and Samsung are dumping washing machines into the United States below their actual cost. And you, you do an in-depth analysis. You go to those countries. You go to those companies. And usually they cooperate, although no, not, not always. It's usually in their interest to cooperate. And we do this a very in-depth analysis, proven out over years and years and years, to say, yeah, actually – um, it it costs more to make these things than they're selling yeah, but, them for. Why would they do yeah. that? Why would they but do that to, to, for market share? Just, just, just. I'm sorry, but it's important to understand what this these tariffs are versus all of the the, the broad conversation. The U.S. government does an assessment. It concludes that the stuff is coming in under cost. Then, and only then, does the issue go over to the International Trade Commission independent body to decide notwithstanding the dumping are u.s companies being injured and if they decide that yes this illegal dumping is harming u.s manufacturers then and only then can they impose a tariff that's what happened here right and so process takes many many months this is not the the tough talking donald trump who's going to slap tariffs on everybody these are very different cases. But very here's the thing. Fact that is not the message coming out of the White House. What you just described is a case brought before the International Trade Commission and an administrative law judge or a panel of administrative law judges that are presented a case of dumping illegal preference, however, you, however the case is brought forward. The administrative law judge or the panel of judges issues it's a ruling saying that, yes. the International Trade Commission. They're commissioners. They are the commissioners. They issue the yeah. ruling. They issue the ruling. And then a fine or is levied against said companies or countries that are dumping. Or sanctions are put in place. for it. It's no different than the Federal Maritime Commission and what it does and other commissions. But that what I'm getting at is, what you just described happens all the time. We just don't hear about it. This instance, it seems that the White House is not pushing the message 
that's what's happening. That's not the message. If you look at the if you look at the sentiment coming out of the White House, you would have thought that Donald J. Trump just you know pushed back against foreign manufacturers and oh by the way if you're going to buy washing you're going to buy american made washing machines and i'm going to be the one that does it and i'm going to i'm going to smack and start uh, i want to smack back all these lg and samsung uh washing machines that are being illegally brought here to the united states two different two different arguments okay so so remember who who south korea is okay they're our buddy. They're our partner. They're our partner against their neighbor, North Korea. They're our partner in the region. They're our partner in joint uh, military uh, exercises of, 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 of great degree. However, however, if you want to sell product in the United States, you, you have to do so in ways that are consistent with U.S. law. I'm not, ta- I'm not disputing the, the, I haven't seen what the White House has said, okay? So I'm not defending what they did or did not say. I'm just trying to tell you what the facts are here. We weren't trying to pick a fight with South Korea, but I think Whirlpool and, and probably other U.S. companies who, who are fewer and fewer are saying, we can't compete with these guys because they're selling below cost. And they're doing it because for whatever reason, the South Korean government has decided it's in their interest to to, to increase global market share and they'll subsidize it for a while. It's classic sort of monopolist type behavior. Um, and uh, and it's, it, in and of itself, it can be illegal and there may be no penalty if there's no U.S. company that's harmed. If there was nobody making washing machines in America, making it, producing them, there would be no harm. There would be dumping, but it would be other foreign, foreign manufacturers. Anyway, it's that it, we're not. We have issues with China, and uh, and the solar panels are sort of a, you know, the politics of the solar panels are different. The politics of South Korean washing machines is awkward, but these things start. They go through the system. They go through the process. And maybe the I haven't seen, as I said, what the White House is saying. They may be trying to make more of this than than it deserves. And with regard with regard to the solar panels, the irony is. We don't have that much capacity in America to make these things, but if we raise the cost, there probably will be fewer of these things installed, and there are hundreds of thousands of people now in America who install solar panels, and if they can't get the product in America or it increase their cost significantly, fewer people will install them. You know, there's never a free lunch here, but this is not just tough. This is a whole different, well-established, under-law process where U.S. companies can seek redress for unfair trading practices. So, sorry I went on so long. (laughs) I have nothing to add. Okay. (laughs) I thought I'd been muted forever. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I feel like I I just sat through my uh, my first semester of, of advanced calculus at the academy again, <laughs> and you've retained equal amounts, right? And I haven't needed it yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we may have 
Justin, are Louis. you there? <laughs> so, Alan, Justin so what, what, do you think yes. of, what do you think of this recent news that, that's come out about uh, the, the president possibly of using uh, campaign funds to pay off a, uh, a former paramour? So thank you for, for not acknowledging it's possible, uh, because I don't think we yet know what the source was. Um, if it's campaign funds, that would be a that would be a I think campaign law violation. I think though the 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 remedy for that is to simply acknowledge it, report it, repay it if, from some other source of money, and uh, uh, and maybe pay a fine of some of some amount. What what's interesting is that. It's possible that a third part, well, that, that Donald Trump might have used personal funds, uh, which seems in, in a way more appropriate, more likely, but probably never reported it. So there's apparently a lawsuit now, again, <laughs> relating to this issue, that it was either a violation of federal election law to use campaign funds for this and not report it, or a, viol- a, 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 different, a violation of a different part of the statute that an individual might make a political contribution on his own behalf and not reported. So the argument is, was this campaign spending, <laughs> which given the timing and everything else seems almost certainly it was done to try to minimize potential political impact prior to the election. Um, it, it, uh, it seems like it, it, it would be hard to argue that it had nothing to do with the campaign. Having said that, it strikes me that it would be more fall more in the nature of a of a technical violation paid by a report and fine. Um, and, uh, and meanwhile, Teflon Don uh, even uh, gets a free pass from evangelicals uh, on this saying, eh, it happened a long time ago. We're all sinners. And as long as uh, we repent a and B, as long as, as we have uh, uh, a sinner who does some great stuff for us in other areas, uh, we'll give them, in the words of one evangelical leader, a mulligan on this one. Well, that being said, uh, you know, I think you know the the real question uh, for me um, is uh, if if indeed he used private funds um, to 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 cover this up um, uh, to enhance his chances of uh, um, being elected, isn't that also a violation of, fam- of, cam- of federal campaign law? Well, as I said, I think that that uh, the, what would be the the, the the violation, as I understand it, and I'm certainly no expert in this stuff, is that a failure to report that if he used his own funds or if there were third-party funds, um, that you have a duty to report campaign spending. And he would say, I didn't. It, let's let's assume it was his own money. He'd say, I didn't see it as campaign spending. I saw it as you know, settling a, a potential legal issue, do that all the time. I've done it hundreds of times in my life. You think it's camp, you say it's campaign spending. I say it's not. What do you want to do about it? If you, if we agree that uh, it was my money and it wasn't, it wasn't illegal to use my money. What was the, the illegality was not reporting. So what do you want me to report? I'll fill it out. I won't acknowledge that I agree, but, I'll report it, and what's the penalty? A fine? It's probably a fine, and then it's done with. 
but it's not, it doesn't strike, it strikes me as an arguable question and by a long, long way from a quote impeachable offense. As you made reference though, if he's going, if he's going to, uh, to Davos right now and in the, the news in the last 48 hours was his wife who was planning to go is now not going. So it may be cold in Davos, but it might be even colder in the White House these days. <laughs> well, you know what I find wonderfully ironic? Thank you, about Sharma. This, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, guys, I'm back on the line. Thank but you. You know, you know what I find? Oh, um, so wonderfully ironic about this is that if this is true, uh, this allegation, then the White House has a great argument to undercut Michael Wolff's assertion that Donald Trump never wanted to be president. Oh, how so? How do you? How do? You, how, how so? Please explain. <laughs> let it. Let because it come if out. you didn't actually want to be president, yeah, let it come out. Why would you want to pay someone one hundred thirty thousand dollars to keep it quiet? Ah, uh, okay. So um, Trump wins either way. Yep, true. Well, we we've lost Justin, and uh, he has ceded um, commentator duties to me by default. So uh, America, as well as Sharmila, in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Alan, you guys are stuck with me. Um, so let's do something we haven't done in a while that I really, really enjoyed. Um, what what didn't we talk about this week? Um, I, I'll take the first one while you guys come up with an answer. Um, I, I posted a um, an article uh, on LinkedIn um, that addressed the, the Navy's plan to uh, charge the commanding officers of the USS John McCain and USS Fitzgerald with um, negligent homicide as a result of the collisions uh, that occurred last summer. Um, this, this, in, in my opinion, is uh, far and away um, an overreach on the part of the Navy. Um, you know, and what's, 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 what's even more interesting is that I'm old enough now to where the most senior officers in the Navy are my classmates from the Naval Academy. So it does mean no uh, no great pleasure to to, uh, to point the finger at people like the CNO um, and and others that that believe that this is a, a good course of action. Uh, we've had a number of collisions uh, in the history of the Navy. Uh, before this one, the last one that we had that had an amazing loss of life was the Belknap in, in the 1970s. Uh, I want to say seven seven sailors lost their lives. Uh, there are a number of, of institutional and infrastructural changes that have occurred in the Navy since then. Most of them done in the in the interest of cutting costs, but um, as 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 um, I think most people uh, who are uh, familiar with uh, making policy changes, sweeping policy changes, um, we're not really seeing. You don't really see the the, uh, the the downsides of some of those for years years down the road. I'm I'm hopeful that with the departure of the uh, the senior surface admiral uh, Admiral Tom Roden. Uh, that the Navy will take a really hard look at some of the things that they can do, like fix the training. Um, but um, I, I want to wish Tom and, uh, a fond farewell. I've known him since we were pleased at Naval Academy. He is, he is a surface warfare officer, surface warfare officer. He's loved by many and, uh, and admired by, 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 by all. And um, so I'll, I'll turn it over to, to uh, Sharmila. What, do you, what, do you, what, what did we miss this week? Oh, well, after that – incredibly compelling story. I feel very bad dragging it back into politics. No, but it's okay. I was it's going to say <laughs> one thing one thing we missed was um reports that there is now tension between the president and his chief of staff John Kelly. I don't know if you guys talked about this while I was 
offline, no. but I thought Please, go uh, ahead. The, the Gabriel Sherman report in Vanity Fair was fascinating that Trump, uh, the president, again, is chafing at restrictions placed against him and, again, feuding with uh, someone who he needs to keep as an ally in order to keep, in order to keep his administration's agenda running. So I think it's, it's, you, you see another example of how no matter what the, no matter what the national crisis or the, the issue of the day, Donald Trump's ego is, is going to be the arbiter of what happens in our nation. And it's a I, I, predicted when, when, president. I predicted when General Kelly took that job that he, was, um, he, had, a, uh, he had an expiration date. And, um, and, and my belief that that expiration date comes out of the fact that he, is, he has a reputation for being a, a man of great integrity, uh, both personal and professional. Uh, he has always done and looked out for um, the, 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 the person as well as the mission. And I think um, that, that, that runs afoul of everything that we've seen in the last year of the White House. Alan. Yeah, and just a, a final thought on that. What, what, what John Kelly is doing, whether intentionally or not, and this is his problem with the president, is he's, he's, he's sort of feeding the narrative that at least he's a grown-up inside, capable of running things, while the president is sleeping in, watching TV, and tweeting. Now, that kind of a picture is devastating to the ego well to every in every possible way including to the ego of the president so that's the big that's that's the heart of the perception problem and then there's who knows what goes on in the daily interaction now the 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 issue that the 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 the, the thing i was thinking about this week is that in the times past i've talked about how there's we don't have two political parties we have four we've got the left and the and the non-left in among democrats and we've got the far right and just the right among Republicans. And how do you get, uh, you know, the Republicans to stick together? How do you get the Democrats to stick together? The, Trump has been, done a remarkable job of, of helping drive the Democrats together, even as he drives the Republicans apart. What we saw this week for the first time in a long time was a reminder that there's this great middle that the left of the the the, the, the plain left, not the far left among Democrats and the plain right, not the far right of Republicans have a lot in common. I'm hesitant to call this group moderates, but some people are using that term and it, whatever term works, but there's this middle of congressional politics that in the Senate this week came together in Susan Collins's office, serious, disciplined, focused, I think recognizing that the country needed to keep operating, that, Politicians in all, in, in, uh, from all sides were looking bad, and maybe they could take some leadership, and the group grew to about 30 before they were done. And they were the key to helping uh, uh, cause Schumer to, to, to give up the fight and for the Republicans to show uh, a little bit of flexibility. And uh, maybe, maybe, maybe that could be a harbinger of some hope for the future. Well, with that, I think we'll, uh, we'll bring uh, this week's show to an end. Um, for Sharmila Charlie, Alan Moore, I'm Ken Carradine with Backroom Politics. We'll be back next week, same time, uh, on, uh, on uh, Blog Talk Radio. Thanks, everybody. Good night, America. 
All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.